Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. With Donovan and Ken. Episode number 214, recorded September 5th, 2015. So more of Volume 1 of DC Comics' Star Trek run. Right. So Finishing off the new voyages. Exactly. So this has been a long story arc, and we are going to get to the end. Our first two issues today wrap up that story arc. I said new voyages, but it's actually new frontiers. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. New frontiers. That's right. Yep, and then we – I guess this next one is just a one, one-off because it doesn't really continue into anything, I don't think. It is a one-off. By a new new writing team and everything, so uh, that's, that's something right. we're going to Right, so these – yeah, th- this has been the same production, folks. I mean, maybe there's been a different letterer, but other than that, I think it's been the, mostly the, ne- the same production team on this story arc. Right, right. Yep. So you want to just go jump straight into it? Please, let's do. Okay. So I'm going to do issue number 15, which is titled The Beginning of the End. Published date is June 1985. Creative team, writer and co-editor Mike W. Barr, artist Tom Sutton and Ricardo Valgran, letterer John Costanza, colorist Michelle Wolfman, co-editor Marv Wolfman. The cover shows Kirk on his knees with a Klingon and Romulan behind him. They've got guns to his head. Behind them are legions of Klingons and Romulan soldiers. Captain Blaine is now in the pit that Kirk had been in prior. And he's being grilled over the coals as Admiral Turner and the other military leaders accuse him of utter failure in stopping Kirk and Excelsior. Blaine admits failure and is surprised when, rather than killing him, Turner tasks him to channel his hatred of Kirk into finding and destroying him. Turner gives Blaine the weapon with which to defeat Kirk. Blaine is speechless when he views the weapon. Meanwhile, far away from Earth, the Excelsior is parked in space alongside multiple Klingon and Romulan ships. Quarreling representatives of both empires are meeting with Kirk, David, and the two Spocks. Surprisingly, the Romulans and Klingons display just as much hatred and distrust of each other as they do for the empire that Kirk says he wants to bring down. In the end, they rather quickly change their tune and trust Kirk. The three leaders join their arms and hands to form a triangle of solidarity against the Terran Empire. Meanwhile, in sickbay, Dr. McCoy and Savick have Evil Kirk and the other Enterprise crew counterparts on anti-grav sleds. McCoy wants to get them into stasis before their sedatives wear off. After McCoy explains how tricky sedatives can be, Evil Savick wakes up and neck-pinches our Savick and takes her place without McCoy being none the wiser. A little while later, McCoy says they are sleeping like babies and thanks Savick for her help. 
As he tells her she can go back to the bridge, Savik moves towards him to administer another neck pinch. She is interrupted when David and Kirk enter the sickbay. McCoy reports they can now keep their counterparts sleeping as long as they like. Kirk, Savik, and David return to the bridge. Evil Savik is surprised that goateed Spock is at the science station. She thinks how successful Kirk has been to turn Spock to his side. She thinks at least she is in the perfect position to ruin Kirk's plans. She just has to wait for the right time. Meanwhile, the Romulan and Klingon commanders take a call from Emperor Kalis. They are allies. Their hatred was at least partially a ruse to gain Kirk's trust. Kalis intends to kill Kirk and take his advanced ship as soon as Kirk's plan unfolds and cripples the Terran Empire's fleet. The Romulan and Klingon captains secretly think how they will dance on each other's graves when they betray each other. Later, Kirk meets with the Klingon and Romulan captains and tells them of his intention to cripple the Terran fleet by nullifying all transtators on their ships, which will remember which will render them dead in space. Spock explains that to protect the Klingon and Romulan ships that also use transtator technology, they will need to install field nullifiers that will protect the Romulan and Klingon ships. They agree to the installation and start immediately. The Klingon captain continues to marvel at what an idiot Kirk is. He will enjoy this betrayal. Kirk gathers Bearclaw, Chekhov, Commander Moreau, and Mr. Sherwood and tells them how they will be pivotal players in the coming battle, but won't fire a shot. They will be flying, they will be flying four very large and specially equipped shuttles that will project the transtator nullifying field. They will fly in formation to create a pyramid-shaped zone that will render all unprotected ships inoperable. Excelsior, the wonder ship, of course, is so advanced that it does not use transtators and is therefore immune to the nullifying field. Preparations are made on the Klingon and Romulan ships to protect them. After complete, they align themselves behind Excelsior and wait for the Terran Empire's fleet. Meanwhile, on Excelsior's bridge, Evil Savik thinks to herself this plan cannot be allowed to succeed. Ahura sends out a weak signal designed to lure the Terran Empire's task force in. It is successful and is being picked up by Captain Trask on the USS Nixon. Captain Blaine is quick to order Captain Trask to take several ships in with him to investigate. They will be the first wave. Trask's first ship Trask's first wave of ships arrive and see the Excelsior and the additional Klingon and Romulan ships. They attack. After they get in close and start inflicting damage, Kirk orders the nullifying fleet field activated. The Empire ships start to stall, with engines and weapons going offline. They are disabled. They think they have won, but Kirk is not so fast to claim victory. He thinks they could not have committed all their forces. They must have a backup plan. So they do, and they see the mirror image of the Excelsior. Spock offers the explanation that the Empire must have been working on their own advanced craft, but was behind the Prime Universe's progress. 
Kirk completes the thought by conjecturing what they learned from Excelsior allowed the Empire to finish their version of the Annex 2000. The Klingons and Romulans ignore Kirk's call for a coordinated attack. They will let the Titans destroy each other and take over the galaxy when they're gone. Blaine attacks and starts cutting through Excelsior's shields. Kirk orders to engage cloaking device. Blaine orders triple the power to sensors and fire phasers and photon torpedoes. Blaine overloads their experimental ship's systems. Though Blaine's, Blaine's overenthusiasm temporarily disables his ship, Evil Savik completes her sabotage of the bridge console she was manning. Spock has to scramble to put out the fire while she exits the bridge. Kirk lets Savik go since she needs since he needs to deal with Blaine, but does not take the time to try to warn McCoy in sickbay. He is too late as Savik stuns him and starts bringing her captain out of stasis. When he comes out of it, Evil Kirk stuns Evil Savik with a phaser he inexplicably has. Our Savik comes up behind Evil Kirk and neck pinches him into unconsciousness. As Evil Kirk realizes it was our Savik who awoke him just minutes before and lied to him so he would stun his own Savik by mistake. Our Savik reports to the bridge that the evil Savik and Kirk are securely unconscious once again. Meanwhile, Kirk has his hands full with the attack force of Klingon and Romulan ships that turned on Excelsior. Traitorous bastards! As they converge, Kirk gives Spock the order to play their ace in the hole. Spock activates the remote destruct that destroys the device that was protecting the Romulans and Klingons from their nullifying field. They are helpless now and cursing Kirk at his treachery. Kirk turns the fleet of disabled Terran Empire ships over to David for the rebellion to use to finish the job of ending the Empire. Luckily, many of the crew honestly want to switch sides. Scotty explains how he was able to fake readings in the Excelsior that put the engineers for the evil NX-2000 on the wrong track. When they attempted to push the ship's power usage beyond their real limits, they overloaded and lost power. Kirk puts their evil counterparts in the large, fancy Excelsior shuttles and head them in the pre-programmed course back to Earth. They are eventually picked up by the ISS Nosura, who, after confirming Evil Kirk's identity, blows the shuttle to bits, with Evil Kirk screaming that he is Captain Kirk! Empire Command is informed. Our Dimension's heroes say their goodbyes to the alternate dimensions Marlena, David, and Spock. Kirk gives the order for Excelsior's modified and magical transwarp engines to take them back to their own dimension. To be continued in the next issue, Homecoming. So I liked seeing the trans taters again. Ah! <laughs> that is classic. That is, I, I, I agree that's classic. Yeah. But... I, I, in case you haven't been listening to, to the podcast from the beginning, uh, in one of the very first episodes of uh, we did. They mentioned trans taters, and neither Ken nor myself Ugh. remembered trans taters being a real part of Star Trek. So we were just laughing it up, 
trans daters. It sounds so funny. And then uh, wasn't that a uh, gold key or something? Yeah, it was a gold key. So and even then, so, gold key. It, come on, it's got no track record being accurate about anything with Star Trek. But right, we but were wrong. We were wrong, and uh, a friend of the show, Brian, pointed it out. And uh, we've been eating crow ever since. Every time, every time they bring up trans tater in these comics exactly so here it is again damn darn it and uh <laughs> there you go is so. it is it isn't that an amazing you know i knew that excelsior was a step beyond the constitution class ships but i must say in these issues it's like is there anything it can't do and i might have used that joke in the past sorry if i did but it's amazing it it doesn't even use trans staters it's, it's a wonder ship Trans, no translators, trans warp, interdimensional field modifications. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Oh, and it can beam through shields. And what else can it do? Oh, it's just it's just it's amazing. a wondership. It's amazing. What what why the crew ends up with a old fashioned uh, Constitution class ship? I don't know. <laughs> I just don't know. Right, and why do they back out all these wonderful gadgets when Sulu takes command? I mean, I think I want <laughs> all this stuff in there. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Anyway, so what do you think about the uh, ISS Excelsior? Uh, uh, easily, they need to get better uh, circuit breakers. Right. I really find it odd that they never even tested bringing up the shields or anything until they're already going into battle. I mean, you would think that well, they would have <clears throat> done some sort of testing, some, uh, you know, some quality assurance before it just they ship it all into battle and find out that as soon as they bring the shields up, it goes well, down. Well, hold on a second. Wasn't it wasn't it a combination not only of shields, but of tripling the power to the sensors to find the cloaked uh, real Excelsior uh, and firing phasers and photon torpedoes. I mean, I mean that captain was, was doing everything at once. True. And the other thing is that whole BS towards the end where Scotty is saying, oh, I was projecting some field or something that made the engineers think they weren't using as much power as they were. It was like, okay. I mean, there were so things that... So was he projecting it real time from the enterprise or I, it was something he programmed it in? must have been I, well when when was scotty ever aboard that particular yeah, he wasn't he wasn't exactly so he he must have magically again now this is scotty magic but who knows maybe the excelsior <laughs> somehow helped him do it um that he could project that so yeah yeah okay. I, 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 on the one hand i kind of see it's it's an experimental ship it's rushed out. It's got some last-minute upgrades that for things they just learned very recently from examining uh, the Prime Universe's Excelsior. So, right. um, well, I, I can kind of buy some of it, but but then again, you got a good point. Whatever, it's very handy, isn't it? Right. Yeah, and and the fact that they use the same ploy from Star Trek Three, where before he knew they were going to scan the real Excelsior, he switched up some data chips so that they would scan them in the wrong place. Oh, right, right. On their own. That seems kind of silly. Right. Yep. Uh, can I mention really quickly about one last thing about translators, though? Uh-huh, yeah, please. Um, 
the Klingon captain claims claims a translator is a Klingon invention, which uh, that amused me. So I thought he was just pulling a check off where everything. Well, exactly right. right, exactly. So I. That's the first thing I was thinking. What is he, the Klingon version of Chekhov all of a sudden? Or, um, and of course, the Klingons are supposed to be kind of like the Russians anyway, uh, you know, as far as an analogy to modern day Earth. The Cold War. Thing, or, the, yeah. or actually the 60s, more right. like the 60s time frame. But, um, but was that it? Or maybe did they really invent the translator? I mean, I, um, and, and I thought the way history went is, uh, you know, we didn't. I didn't think we got anything from the Klingons from a technology standpoint, but no, who knows? How interesting. Yeah, so then that that's uh, that's funny. And this book predates Star Trek VI by quite a bit. And yeah. in Star Trek VI, they have that great joke about uh, you've never read Shakespeare until you oh. read it in the original Klingon. Yeah, yeah, that's a joke, obviously, but. Yeah, right. Right, but I mean, but this also could be a joke in the same vein, and this came out, you know, several years before Star Trek Six. Yep, right. That's quite funny. Yep. Indeed. Um, oh, by the way, <clears throat> this whole thing is just reminding me, I'm going to try to keep this short, but I was watching on YouTube the other day, um, I think it's called Prelude to Axanar. I, I may have the, the the planet name wrong, but... Right, that fan film. The fan film, documentary right. Documentary type thing? It, it's like a documentary. Mm-hmm. And I was – maybe that's been out for a while, but this is the first time I was aware of it. And I thought it was really good. And they had some really good actors in it. And they had some good um, – you know, uh, the quality of the sets and of the special effects. It was actually pretty good. Yeah, no, that's good. They're, they're, uh, they're trying to get funding to do another episode because that one right. kind of ends off on a on, – as if it was part one of a – Right, like a mini series or something, but yeah. uh, no, it's quite good. It, it uh, doing the pre-Kirk uh, Klingon exactly Federation war, war. exactly. So, um, and quite frankly, maybe I'm out of it, but I didn't know there was a Klingon war uh, in the past. I mean, I know there was the big uh, Romulan war. I know about that. Right. So this Klingon war, what do they call it? The Seven-month war? I forgot what they called it exactly. But, um, I thought it was a seven-year war. Seven-year war? It's years, right? I don't know. Okay, like, years, fine. Seven years war. Uh, it was something like that. So this happened after the Romulan uh, war and after the Federation is formed and, and of course, before we pick up with the uh, Taz series. So um, I think it's really interesting. I mean, and you can see... At the end, the big thing is uh, the D7 cruiser, uh, the Klingons are feverishly working on, and then the Federation is feverishly working on its ship to go toe-to-toe with the the D7, which they've been able to find out about. And, of course, we're going to see all that in the full movie. So I guess they just had – and, of course, you know it's going to be Constitution class. Well, Um, they showed it. It was. Well, but they showed it like within dry dock. You couldn't right. see it fully. In dry dock, right. But you, you could, you know, because you can't see, you can see parts of it through the outer skeleton of the dry dock thing. So it, it should be good. So I thought I guess, they showed the registration number as being NCC-1701. I, th- I thought that well, was the whole thing sh- that that was the Enterprise being built. Right, fine, 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 it's, fine, It's fine, been fine, a while. Whatever. So, I mean, you've seen it since I have, so. Yeah. 
So anyway, so it looks really good. It looks like they only had enough money to do that 15-minute thing, 10-minute thing, however long it was. It seemed like it was at least 15 minutes. So, um, but I, I think I'm going to kick some money in. What the heck? Yeah. And, and for uh, being a fan film, I mean, it has Tony Todd in it, who, you know, is a, is yep. a, he's played several characters in Star Trek yep. over the years. Yep. Um, I, I didn't Hatch. recognize any of the other ones. What, who? Richard Hatch. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. He's the Klingon guy. Yeah, Apollo from uh Yeah, he was Apollo, right? Yeah, from he, yeah, Battlestar yeah. Galactica. Yep. And then uh I forgot the gentleman's name, but he was the guy that was the star in Alienation TV series who's played Oh yeah, uh, Gary um Gary? Oh, man, yeah, I want to say his name's Gary. Uh, uh Anyway, well, he's a really good actor, and this actually is the same character from Enterprise that he played, but right. just further in the future. So that's cool. Yeah, I forgot that he was in it, too. Yeah. Yeah, no, top-notch cast and production, quite good. Yeah, very impressive. Okay, uh, and it's looking I, – I don't know that I buy everything it's saying as far as from uh, – um, continuity standpoint, but I, it's it's quite entertaining so far. Yeah, it's in, it, it's about as uh, canonical as this comic. <laughs> exactly. Okay, let's which get back. Do, to which that does point. not take away the enjoyment of the book. No, not at all. Okay, so let's get back to this. All right, so I, I got a question about the the new Excelsior. Yes. Um, why does it have the Starfleet swoosh painted on it instead of the Earth and Sword? Very good question. Mistake, perhaps? Maybe. Or they copied the Prime Universe Excelsior so closely that they had the um, they had the Starfleet swoosh. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, and maybe they just didn't have the... Uh, maybe it's actually reused artwork... Uh, no, of the was... Prime Universe Excelsior, <laughs> and they just didn't want to redo it. See, all you have to right. do is re- erase right here and put in the sword and everything. <laughs> Symbol. So it is funny that that you know again we're talking about how you know something in this reminded us of Star Trek Six. Uh, there's a huge episode of Deep Space Nine where uh, Smiley O'Brien comes from the Mirror Universe to get the plans for the Defiant. And right. then they recreate a alternate universe Defiant, which remarkably looked exactly the same as our Defiant. Exactly. Um, you know, does that not sound familiar? This, these stories kind of mirroring themselves a little bit. Um. Yes. Yep. I mean, to the degree that you know they're they're building the exact same ship. Exactly. Well, yes. Now, in this case, they've been working on it in this comic. Right. In the other one, Smiley was working from scratch, I guess. Yeah, but he's just that awesome. Yeah, exactly. I mean, well, not scratch. He's got the plans right. of our Defiant, but still. There isn't a prototype in, 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 in process when he gets the plans. Then he actually, he actually takes the regular O'Brien over, too, right? It's been a long time since I read. Watched takes him over? Yeah, what I think mean? that he stole the plans, that. and then in the episode, he brings the regular O'Brien over to kind of fix fix a few things oh yeah okay was that a separate episode i don't was remember that... man 
Yeah, I know. It's been a while. They did quite a few uh, alternate universe. They did. They did like that in DS9. And I liked it. And I liked it, too. Uh, And, of course, if all the things they're saying here uh, happened, at least in this version of the alternate universe, uh, there should be no uh, evil Terran uh, empire by the time Deep Space Nine time comes. But the great thing is... There's so many, There's an infinite number of dimensions, so we don't even know if it's the same one as was on DS9. Exactly. So you've always got that out. So uh, I got a question. Yes. Is McCoy that old that he can't hear anything? Yeah. Oh, but the I whole mean, switcheroo of yeah. Sonics? Yeah. Yeah. He does. He, I get that he had his back turned when. Evil Savick woke up and neck pinched uh, the good Savick, but that would have to make some noise. You would think so, yeah. Some scuffle. Yeah, but hey, come on. Let's not be too picky. Agreed. Sorry. Agreed. Don't want to ruin the moment by actually thinking too hard. All right, I'll try not to think. (laughs) Too hard. Oh, oh, oh. Too hard. Yeah. All right, so uh, in the end, remind me what happened to the the counterpart, uh, Kirk's. They they were they were sent back right to Styles. Yeah, they, yeah. Uh, they were sent and back to Earth. Him. Styles, no. Okay, so I don't. That's Styles. Uh, Styles. Whoever the alternate it, who, commander who, was. Whoever happened to be in in command of that particular ship, uh, I forgot the name of it. Um, so this was not a ship that was in the task force, obviously, because the task force ships from the Empire, they're, they're all out of commission. So, uh, right. So Kirk put all their evil counterparts onto one of those big uh, Excelsior shuttles, which I'll comment on soon, and then flies it back towards Earth. And then it happens to come upon a uh, an, uh, an Empire ship and... As far as they know, it's Kirk. It's normal Kirk who's the renegade. So they blow up the shuttle. Right. So all the Enterprise counterpart crew are dead in this universe. Exactly. Exactly. They all got their comeuppance, and it did not come from our good guys. Yeah. Okay. All right. I, I, that's what I thought. Okay. Very handy. Very handy. So, yeah, there's this, this universe cannot be the one from Deep Space Nine because – in Deep Space Nine, they talk about Emperor Tiberius Kirk. There you go. Emperor. <laughs> exactly. Right. So, um, what about those shuttles? Uh, I thought they were, like, the biggest. I mean, they look... I mean, they, I think they're even bigger than a runabout. Um, but they're pretty big shuttles. I've never seen shuttles that big on a uh, Federation ship. But, hey, it is Excelsior, after all. Well, they're they're very Buck Rogers looking. Yeah, I mean they have they have nacelles, or I don't know if those are just pylon landing pylons, but let's assume they're nacelles. But then it also has three looks like conventional jet engines in the back too. Yeah, they're um, yeah, yep. So I bet that bad boy's fast. Oh, I bet. I mean, so you've got – so I guess those jets in the back are for – are their impulse engines uh, of some kind. 
where they have the more conventional kind of sort of uh, shuttle uh, warp. Well, okay. <laughs> exactly. So they've got the outboard engines that almost look like sled kind of things, landing gear kind of things. But I think I thought those were engines too. Are, are those supposed to be warp engines? I, don't know. I thought those were warp engines, yeah. There you go. Okay. And then the other, the three things in the back you were mentioning must be some kind of impulse engine, I guess. Anyway. So, anyway, they're big, they're huge, and never saw them before. Interesting design, I suppose. Right. And this is a, this is a prime universe because it has Starfleet swoosh on it. Yes. Right. And they're on, you know, our Excelsior. Right, right. Indeed. Crazy. Indeed. Crazy. This tech. So, that's right. We never see that design again. At least not... Well, maybe we'll continue to see them later in these uh, these issues. These Volume 1 issues. Well, if the Excelsior hangs around, which I don't know if it will. Yeah. Well, they got to get back to their normal uh, Constitution class ship, right? Exactly. Maybe. Maybe. All right. What else do you have on this one? Um... I thought it was interesting how Captain Blaine in previous issues was drawn to look a little older. I think he might have even had some uh, gray hair um, when they first had a little scuffle in that bar. Right. Um, he and Kirk. But in th- these, these, this issue, he's got – he must have got out the Grecian formula or something because he's got a hair like Kirk's. As a matter of fact, a lot of times when Blaine is drawn, he looks a bit like Kirk. He looks um, a lot like Kirk. Yeah. Exactly. So he's definitely, um, you know, taken some youth treatments mm-hmm. or something since we first met him. Right. I just wonder why they made that decision. I don't know. Might have just been a coloring error. Mm, maybe. Okay. That Earth saying. So Kirk says something when he's dealing with the Klingon and Romulan. Uh, commanders, he says, if we don't hang together, we all hang separately. And it, and he says that's an old Earth saying. And it's like, I've never heard that. Have you heard that? Is, is that a common thing? That I just, no, but he's I've 300 heard years in the future. It's an old well, saying for him, but it's going to be a new saying for us later. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll take that explanation, but I'm just saying. A lot of times when Kirk uses phrases, it's things we've all heard, but... Okay, fine. Okay, okay fine. Yeah, I'm not familiar with it, but I, I assume it's probably a real one. Yeah, okay. And, uh... Oh, yeah, cloaking device. Of course. Of course the Super Excelsior would have a cloaking device. Did it ever have a cloaking well, device like... before in, in this? No. I mean, okay. But the Enterprise had a cloaking device at the beginning, too, so... Yeah, like I suppose if the, the Enterprise has cloaking devices. Uh, uh, but they're such good guys, they normally don't use yeah, them. Somebody, that's unfair. Somebody commented on that in the in the letters pages, and, and uh, I guess it was Mike Parr, maybe, or the Marv Wolfman. But whoever was right. answering him said, you know, just because they don't say they have it doesn't mean they don't have it in, in the movies. So right. that was their justification, that it's been... Ten years since they stole the cloaking device from the Romulans. They should have it by Don't now. Don't you think they would be using it by now? I completely right. agree. It's just another one of those things. They come into contact with some great new bit of kit. But for some reason, they never use it in the future. So right. I agree from that standpoint. It's just handy that everybody's got a cloaking device now. Anyway. That's my that last they comment. never use. 
uh, right. apparently, well, really except in these issues. Right. right. Okay. All right, my last comment is uh, I liked all the space battles in theory, but oftentimes the, the ships looked overly simplified and smooth and things like that that yeah. uh, well. kind of took me out of what they were trying to show. Right. Well, sure was budget. I mean, the, these Constitution classes shouldn't look like pie plates, you know. <laughs> oh, well, well I, there are some panels where they look good. Uh, a little some. simplified. They don't look like pie plates, but, yeah, yeah some other, other ones. ones. Yeah. Right. Yeah, <laughs> true. But, I mean, they sh- and some of these panels, they show an awful lot of ships. Right. And in some cases, designs I haven't seen, configurations I haven't seen before. They're definitely not all Constitution class. But. No, they look like Constitution and Reliant and maybe, maybe yeah, some other ones. Yeah, kind of Reliant, but even the Constitution, yeah. The, the the reliant and constitution designs have some spins on them. And so, some well, this of them is anyway. the alternate universe. They, I they agree. do things slightly different. And then that's fine. I, I actually I like that. <laughs> so Okay. Next All right, anything else? I'm done. All right. Next up is Homecoming. What happens when they get back? There you go. Alright, so the writing staff is Mike W. Barr, um, Tom Sutton, Richard Valergren is the artists. John Costanza, letterer. Michelle Wolfman, colorist. And Marv Wolfman, co-editor. Mike Barr is also co-editor, by the way. So, New Frontiers, Chapter 8, Homecoming. Star Trek, Volume 1, DC Comics, Number 16, came out July of 1985. So, the cover shows a blue-skinned Andorian female holding an F1 restricted data tape. On the monitors behind her, we see images of Spock, McCoy, Kirk, and uh, some other folks, some some ships and things. So the story starts with the Excelsior popping back into the main universe to be greeted by a huge fleet of Federation ships, including the USS Christopher Pike. Once Kirk confirms that they are indeed the real Excelsior and the real crew, Captain Stiles informs them that they are all under arrest and to be escorted back home. Kirk does not fight it, but he does ask Savick to transfer a tape to Uhura Station. Something else is afoot. Elsewhere, perhaps on Earth, or a space station around Earth, uh, reporter Lindra Dean is getting the runaround when she tries to interview Starfleet Brass. Discouraged, the Andorian returns home to find an open signal communique from Admiral Kirk. She uses this data to become a huge media star, reporting on the true tale of Kirk's battle with alternate dimension counterparts and how he has saved the universe more times than she can count. The story becomes big news. She is brought in to talk to the high Starfleet brass. They try bullying her into pulling the reports, but she says she has the right of free press and leaves the office uninterrupted. En route to Earth, Kirk gives a heartwarming speech about loving the crew. When they do arrive, Kirk and Spock meet with the head admiral who tells them that they will not be brought up on charges in fear of the public outcry based on the recent media reports on the fantastic Captain Kirk. Instead, Kirk will be assigned as the permanent captain of the Excelsior and Spock will be assigned command of the 
science vessel, the USS Zurich. The two leave the office and return to their newly appointed commands. Though they are not facing charges, they are now separated. The two depart on their respective missions. Elsewhere, Lindra receives a flower with a note that says, Thank you, JTK. Wow. An entire issue dedicated to Kirk avoiding unjust treatment after he has saved the Federation. Again. Again. I mean, I don't know. What, the, the Starfleet is ran by a bunch of, na- of, of poop heads. Yeah, of course. I, I just tell you, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I don't know. I like this issue uh, in that it shows how the media can influence uh, governments or organizations into doing something that they necessarily might not want to. But Right. Uh, which is, you know, true today as it was, I guess, in 85 when this came out. Oh, yeah. A... Um... A honest <laughs> uh, media that wants to get at the truth is an important um, check of power uh, for the government. That's it's – it's incredibly important. Our civics lesson of the day. But it also goes the other way that a dishonest news media can be equally as powerful. Well, that goes with anything. I mean right. you could have – yeah, and they could expose things that are really not good to expose, uh, secret things that maybe need to be kept secret. But um, there's always that balancing act, isn't there? Any, any wing of government can abuse its power, and that's why we have a, a, the, you know, the, the judiciary and the co- Congress and the executive branch to all check each other, supposedly. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, too, the... Media has a role, but definitely any one of those groups could abuse their power. So, right. Anyway, yes. So, uh, so it's an Andorian. I thought it was very. I thought it was very good that they had an alien instead of it always being a, an Earth person. Right. So, did he target her with this open communique, or was she just the only one that happened to listen to that that uh, that channel? Because it kind of seemed like it was just he was just reporting it out there, and she just grabbed up on it. Yeah, it seemed like she was the only one that's actually working, where right. all the other uh, reporters are like lackadaisical drunkards <laughs> that aren't even that aren't, aren't even po- uh, bothering to listen to what's going on. So amazing, right? Anyway, as far as her character goes, I I liked her. Um, She's sassy. Yeah. My only complaint is that on the cover she has brown antennae. <laughs> Hold on, let me look at that. I I did not see that or didn't notice it anyway. Oh, yeah, right, brown antennae. There you go. And I don't think we had seen female Andorians up to this point in in the live action shows, but mm-hmm. you know, from what we know of Enterprise uh, Andorian women, she seems quite small for a female Andorian. Right. They tend to be big. Right. Yeah. How about the USS Christopher Pike, baby? I thought that was cool. That was great. What a great nod to that uh, great character. Right. But but if you think about it, 
I mean, where where does the rest of the Federation think Christopher Pike is? Because he was Commodore, then he got hurt, and then you know maybe about ten years ago, chronologically from the story, he just disappeared. You know, we know where he is, but do they don't? The the public doesn't. Well, the public doesn't, but I mean, Kirk did report back to Starfleet about all that, right? Well, yeah, and there was and there was a guy there that was trying to court martial Spock and decided that that you know he wasn't going to. Oh no, no, that guy no, didn't he's even fake. exist. He didn't yeah, exist. I forgot. <laughs> so we assume that Kirk and Spock <laughs> told the rest of the Federation what happened, but right. you know, or reported back to Starfleet anyway. But who? But they might not have. Right. Well, I don't know. We don't know. Yeah, I just thought it was odd. That that they already named a, a ship a ship after, after him. him. Yeah. Yep. Um, but I did think it was funny last issue when they named one after Nixon. In the oh, alternate right. Universe. Right. Which I don't know if that was supposed to be a dig. Well, to, you know, in the alternate universe, Nixon was a good guy. You know, kind of like the well, way they do him in yeah, but, Watchmen. Right. Uh, yeah, or. The Dark Knight. Wasn't that the one where Nixon was pulling... Uh... No, that's Reagan. Sorry. Yeah, that was Reagan. That was Reagan being <laughs> naughty in the comics. Sticking Superman onto Batman. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I, I, I wasn't even sure exactly who they named it after. I mean, the only famous person I know of named Nixon is Richard Nixon. That's what I thought. I thought the same thing. But it's like... Right. Why would they name a ship after a 20th century president? I mean, of the United States, right? Of the United States, exactly, right. So, I mean, you know, you like him, you hate him, but he's just a president. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, it's not like he brought us through World War II, right? Uh, or, 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 or Washington. You know, I mean, you know, a president that really stood out for something positive. Um, I don't know. But or, we don't but, know. Maybe, maybe in the alternate universe he did. There you go. Or is it saying because it's an evil, it's an evil-minded place that somebody, a president that wasn't too good, would be thought of more positively. See, I, I, again, I thought that was kind. Of, I, I thought is that, that, is they that wrote your it point in there as as a dig. Yeah. Okay, so that was your point. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't but know. but that was interesting that they that they chose to name it the Nixon. Hmm. But anyways, here it is, named after Commodore Christopher Pike, who has disappeared uh, ten years ago. Uh, so after a horrible accident. Yeah. Fitting, because I mean, I'm assuming he was a famous Starfleet persona. You'd think so. He definitely is famous in our minds. But um, unlike Archer, he didn't start the Federation. Or, I mean, he didn't do something really huge. I mean, he was a great captain and everything. And he saved those those cadets, right? Um, Right. But it's like really big historically. Well, at least we didn't see it. But right. whatever. Yeah. Um, so, you mind if I mention something I think might have been a little error? No, go ahead. Okay. So on page seven of the comic, 
in the last panel uh, of that page is a little yellow-faced alien-looking guy with pointy ears uh, Mm -hmm. in a black tuxedo, and he begins a sentence by saying, you know what your problem is, girly? Then on the next, you turn the next page, and then in the first panel there, you see a totally different guy. Oh, my goodness. Who appears to be a chunky human guy with a heavy-looking teal and yellow overcoat. Totally different from a tux. He finishes the sentence. You work too hard. <laughs> and it was right. like, that had to be a mistake. I mean, they couldn't have done that purposely. I mean, this well, isn't a shape-shifting alien or something, right? I mean. Yeah, no, you're right. So. Yeah, the, the, you know, the, of the three people that are with her in that first panel on page seven. Yeah. I mean, it looks like the woman carries over to the next page, but even she looks a little different. And then yeah. there's an older man and that little guy. They they've morphed into other people. Yeah, so very we, interesting. Yeah, well, is this? I mean, there are two artists. I mean, <laughs> maybe they just were there different people writing those, drawing those two panels, and they just didn't talk to each other. And by the time they they noticed that they were totally on different pages, <laughs> that was like, uh, we can't redo it. Print it, know. ship it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I didn't catch it at all. Yeah. That is funny. Very good. Yeah. Um, uh, you want another one? Yeah. Okay. Hit so me. on page 13, there's an actual text typo where Grand Admiral Stephen Turner asks Lindra Dean if she, would, if she wants something to drink. So instead of a G, it's a K at the end. Anyway. Yep. Yeah. Something. Yeah. And I. Something. And I look. Drink. Yeah, I I zoomed in on it and I w- made sure it wasn't like a print, you know, like a like it was blobby bad ink or something. Right. It looks like a K. No, oh, it's a K. Yeah. So. Oh, that's funny. And I guess I was uh, critically reading that day when I did this. You got another one? Come on. No, I just saw two. <laughs> Doesn't mean there isn't more, but I only saw two. That's funny. Good job. Yeah, and that's really all I have to say about this issue. I, I really this issue wasn't really um, uh, didn't really flip my trigger. I mean, it was an okay issue. It just really was like it just didn't wow me. Right. Yeah, I liked uh, that. Kirk got his own or Spot got his own command because that makes sense. He's a captain. Yep. Uh, he shouldn't just always be second fiddle to Kirk. Yeah, but I'm kind of surprised about that. I mean. Yeah, I'm surprised he's got fit for duty. I mean, because he was dead just a couple of months ago, maybe <laughs> just a couple of weeks ago. He was dead. He brought back to life. He was crazy. He mind melded with uh, another universe to get his brain right. Right. Uh, and uh, now he's commanding a ship. Well, yeah, and he's a little quick. Right. And they do at least throw the bone, saying that on a science vessel. They'll have the facilities and everything to keep an eye on him to make sure he's okay. So it was like, okay, you've thrown that bone there, but still, you shouldn't be giving somebody in his position command <laughs> of a ship. But whatever. And, and I, I was just wondering what was going to happen. It's like, oh, oh okay, Does this, is this going to be like a, 
like a Star Trek sex thing where Spock's going to show up in the same story as the Enterprise and stuff? Or are we just not going to see him for a while? Um, no, I'm sure he'll be back. Yeah. Right. But not in the next issue. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so they got to um, – I mean eventually they got to – what which is cool about the series is that you know they're writing it, they don't know what Star Trek Four is going to be like, but right. eventually they'll get to a point where they got to kind of rein it back in so that they can fit in line with what happens in Star Trek Four, right? Which means getting them all back together on Vulcan. Yeah, and then Spock's so. going to go whacked again. I think that when they link up with the next movie, it's going to be a little off kilter because I don't think they'll be able to do it exactly. It's going to we'll be see. there's going to be some wackiness going on when they make the transition. We'll see. We'll see. Well, I think I don't, I don't see how they can do it otherwise. It's like, oh, while he's on the science vessel, did uh, Spock revert? It's like, and then oh, let's take him back to Vulcan and let's so put him not, in ropes again. Gonna, oh wait, hold on, wait. If that happens, you're not going to like it. I'm not. <laughs> no, I'm not going to like it at all. <laughs> but oh. I mean. I mean, is that, what they're gonna, is that how they're going to shimmy it up? I, I, I don't know. I'm not going to say, but uh, mm. let's go to the next episode. <laughs> <laughs> next issue. Okay. Okay, so this one is uh, issue number 17. It's the D'Artagnan 3. So a little Musketeers reference there, I suppose. August 1985. Writer is L.B. Kellogg. Artist Tom Sutton and Ricardo Vilgran. So at least they're consistent. Uh, oh, actually, everybody's consistent except for the writer. Uh, letterer, John Costanza. Colorist, Michelle Wolfman. Editor, Marv Wolfman. The cover shows Sulu, Ahura, and Bearclaw with their backs against a steel wall with a cadre of space pirates of all shapes and sizes advancing on them with weapons out uh, and, in some cases, firing. Text says Sulu, Ahura, and Bearclaw on their own. And that Kirk had better have some replacements ready. Captain's log tells us the Excelsior is in pursuit of a small cargo ship with a very powerful and strange energy reading inside. Rather than responding to their hails, the ship's captain chooses to run. Sulu is at the con and chooses to pursue. The cargo ship takes a shot at them. Sulu takes the kid gloves off and orders phasers to carefully take out the smuggler ship's engines. After it's disabled, they bring the ship into a shuttle bay. Aboard, they find two people and a whole lot of dilithium crystals. The smugglers should not have access to such a cargo, but they refuse to say where they obtained it. Kirk and McCoy trick them into spilling the beans by telling them... They will use a tricky truth serum on them. The smugglers say they got the crystals from Cestus V and were delivering them to the black market on Aurelius I. Kirk thanks them and calls a meeting of his senior staff. Meanwhile, Bryce gets advice from Commander Uhura about her relationship with Kanam. That is starting to stall out. Uhura says her first duty is to Starfleet, her ship, and her crewmates. Then, after that is satisfied, she needs to push for what she wants with Kanam. Bryce sees Kanam across the room, thanks Ahura, and goes to him. Ahura thinks to herself how lucky they are. 
Meanwhile, in the briefing room, the gathered male officers are discussing the hostile surface conditions on Cestus V and the space station Aurelius I. Aurelius I is an independent station that has a reputation for walking a fine line between legal and illegal activity. Taking a large shipment of unregistered dilithium crystals definitely falls in the illegal category. It turns out that Uhura used to know the man that runs the station very well. His name is Kubaka Buganda. Kirk wants Uhura to go down incognito, contact Kubaka, and get a feel for what's going on down there. She agrees to do it and heads down in the smuggler's ship with Sulu and Bearclaw. They are dressed in civilian clothes. Before they left, Scotty updated the ship with improved weapons and a transporter. Kirk takes Excelsior to Cestus V to investigate the source of the dilithium crystals. Ahura's team is on their own. As they approach Aurelius Station, their standard hail results in ten or more ships coming out and flying aggressively towards them. Sulu tells Bearclaw to do some unexpected flying, but to keep approaching the station. Ahura tries a different hail, where she says she is a friend of Buganda. They are allowed to dock with the station and come aboard to be met by a motley crew of pirate-looking thugs. The tallest thug, named Stizar, turns out to be the group's leader, who does not appear to like Buganda one little bit. They take Ahura's team prisoner. Stazar tells Ahura that since she is a friend of Buganda, he will keep her for himself. Ahura tries in vain to push the giant away, when suddenly a whip from behind wraps around Stizar's neck and yanks him backward, landing on his posterior. It's Buganda, who takes Ahura into his arms. They give each other a really big smooch. Meanwhile, on Cestus V, Kirk takes a landing party down and finds a dilithium crystal mining operation using slave labor. Savik determines the slaves are not native to the planet, so Kirk is free of the Prime Directive restrictions. They make short work of the slavers and release the slaves. Back on the station, Ohura and her team speak to Buganda and find out he is still in charge, but it's difficult to control the many wild elements on the station. Ohura explains that she, Sulu, and Bearclaw were drummed out of Starfleet due to their involvement in the affair that led to the destruction of the Starship Enterprise. They pooled their money and bought a ship hoping to become traders. Buganda tells one of his people to go down to the ship with Sulu and Bearclaw to see if it's big enough to make cargo runs for them. After they leave, Buganda and Ohura rekindle their romance. While checking out the smuggling ship, a slave gets free and is trying to escape. Jones, the lackey that is with Sulu and Bearclaw, says he has to deal with the slave and shoots the man dead. Sulu and Bearclaw are sickened by the concept of slavery still going on, and worse, that the man was killed so automatically. Jones contacts Buganda and tells him to get to level 15. There's trouble to deal with. 
Ahura takes the opportunity to contact Sulu, who tells her Buganda is dealing in slaves. Unfortunately, Ahura is being monitored, and Buganda finds out that she is a Federation spy. Sulu and Ahura decide it's time to leave and report back to the captain. Before Ahura can get back to the ship, Buganda confronts her in a hall. They accuse each other of betrayal. Ahura punches Buganda square in the face, which hurt but only severely enraged the slaver. Sulu comes upon them and uses his patented Sulu Kung Fu skills to send Buganda flying into a bunch of crates. Sulu and Ahura make tracks for the ship. Meanwhile, on Cestus V, one of the slaves takes Kirk to a nearby city populated by sentient indigenous life forms that are the dominant life form, uh, forms on the planet. They turn out to be fish people in life support suits that allow them to live on dry land. The fish people ask if they have brought the water Buganda promised them. Kirk says they did not and Buganda could never manage to bring enough water to them to save them. The sun has evolved into a red giant that vaporized most of the water on Cestus V. Kirk tells the fish people of the Federation of Planets and practically guarantees that they will find another world that has plenty of water that their people can relocate to. The fish people are elated. Kirk calls for a beam-up so they can make their rendezvous with Ohura's team. Meanwhile, Ohura's team is speeding away from Aurelius I, but being pursued by a fleet of ships. Most are flying hunks of junk, but one cruiser can outrun and outgun them. Sulu orders Bearclaw to take them into the fleet of ships. The slower ships will provide cover from that large cruiser's weapons. They start blasting away at many of the slower ships that they can make them Im- so they can make them immobile. Buganda, who is commanding the large cruiser, orders all ships to open fire with a bounty for the ship that disables or destroys the smuggling vessel. The smuggling le- vessel blows up. Sulu's first command destroyed. Prior to her destruction, Sulu transported all three of them to Buganda's ship on a lower deck hoping to escape detection. They quickly discover they are among chained slaves. They release the slaves who are willing to fight for their freedom. On the cruiser's bridge, Buganda thinks Ahura and her team are destroyed, so he now has the time required to move their base of operations. He is proved wrong when Sulu, Ahura, Bearclaw, and the slaves storm the bridge. After a violent battle that includes cutlasses, har matey, Buganda is defeated. Ahura's team finally show up at their rendezvous point. Kirk is surprised at the ship Sulu is captaining. They explain they had to improvise and start beaming over to Excelsior with prisoners in tow. Before being hauled off to the brig, Buganda has one last word with Uhura. Ahura tells him she betrayed him because of responsibilities. Buganda says he feels sorry for Ahura and her lonely life with only her responsibilities to keep her company. Ahura says she is thankful for the life she has. Very thankful. The end. Very thankful.
Mm, kind of a bittersweet ending for Uhura, don't you think? Yeah, all of her. Every time they do a story about her past loves, they don't always. They always end bad. Yeah, I I don't remember many of those. We did another comic book a while back where uh, I think it was an annual or something. Yeah. Um, where she had a fiance that that uh, left her. Could it yeah. be the same guy? Could it have been? Oh, the same character. I don't know. Yeah, now that I think about it, um, I wonder. Yeah. Well, definitely, I think at the beginning when she has that whole conversation with Bryce about Kanam, it was a right. total setup for the ending. Right. So even though she was very you know, strong-willed and everything about saying thank God for her life and everything, you, could, you know she's, she's also lonely. So it's kind of a... A bittersweet thing. Yeah. Well, what do you think about that whole relationship with uh, Bryce and Kanam? It's like, ew. I mean, <laughs> I, I, the Klingons do not are not attractive people. I mean, Worf was that cool and everything in Next Gen, especially not you know once they got past season one. But um, you know, his makeup was a little little better a little more attractive, but Kanam looks pretty nasty. It's like, and Bryce is pretty cute, so it's like, eh, eh. That's, <laughs> that's my thought. Huh. I think you have a different take on it. Um, I don't have any type of, uh, visually, that doesn't bother me. <laughs> <laughs> it's what's inside that counts. Exactly. Yeah. Just, I don't know. Uh, I guess because we don't spend a lot of time with them, it just seems a little bit out of nowhere. Like Yeah. Like they're in the background. We don't ever see them, yet now we're supposed to believe that they've – I mean I guess we've seen a little bit of them building a relationship, but still yep. it just seems a little fast. Yeah, it does. But, yeah. But I guess if you – once you know, you know, right? Yeah. Hey, you know, yeah. You know, quite frankly, this seems like a great buildup to actually the – Scott to help explain the Scotty Ahura romance – in <laughs> Star Trek Five, Star Trek Five, right? Which, of course, they have nothing to do with each other, right? Because that whole romance was out of the blue when we saw Star Trek Five. I mean, I, I don't remember them having any kind of relationship. No, before. never. So it was really out of the blue. But something like this, if it happened beforehand, would give a little bit more of an explanation, a little more motivation to the to actually something like that changing. I don't know. I don't know. I still think it was out of the blue. That was just that was just crazy, and I'm glad they've never mentioned it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, Nichelle Nichols, I must say, a very attractive lady, especially in her Taws days. But she never had the skinny, sultry shape that she is drawn in, or her is drawn in, in this comic. In which outfit? Well, uh, the uh, good point. So when she was first getting together with um, Buganda or whatever the hell his name is, um, there were some shots where she was in more like the leotard kind of thing. Right. And she was drawn very skinny and very, very shapely and nice. Right. And then this actually this is part of another thing. But unexpectedly – on page 14, all of a sudden, she's got like a fuchsia-colored 
bulky, almost space spacesuit kind of thing on, where, where Buganda confronts her. And right. I don't know. Well, I don't know when that that costume change happened. But well, no, she, I'm talking about the first. When they one. first, she was in that bulky thing when they first got onto the space station or or planet, whatever it is. Okay. And then she takes off the jacket when she's talking to him, and then I guess at some point she puts it back on. Yeah, it's more than just a jacket, though. Yeah, it is like pants and stuff too, with knee pads and stuff. Yeah, because she's in, you know, when yeah, she she's definitely wearing that when they come out of the shuttle. Well, okay, so when she comes out of the shuttle, I mean, it looks like a jacket with a hood, and it's still pretty pretty saucy in the fact that the front zipper's down a bit and there's a little cleavage showing, but. <laughs> Well, look at look at page. It, it just eight. looks different. I mean, what, whatever's on the pants, I mean, they're huge, like something covering up her calves and things like that. It's, yeah, it's a yeah. very awkward. It's it's outfit. weird looking. Let's just say her outfit changes a lot. And how did she get matching boots to uh, Buganda? By the way, so on page twelve, and by the way, this is one of those those little panels. It's a very small drawing. Where it shows uh, her is just, Buganda is just hugely tall. He's a giant over her. And she's got this little, uh, little leotardy kind of pants. And, and, and quite frankly, the top she's got on is the color of the jacket. But the fit is more like the pink shirt she had on. And all I'm just saying is her outfits has some amount of inconsistency. I can see that. I can see that. Again, especially on page 14. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's gone from what looked like a jacket into what looks almost like a bulky spacesuit, but whatever. Right. I mean, look at the collar. It's gone from a hood into being some kind of tall, padded-looking collar. I don't know, whatever. Yeah, so her maybe, maybe really... That's another, maybe that's another situation with two different artists. Maybe, maybe. But how do you like when Ahura gives him a sock? Buganda, that is. Right. I mean, it's just it's just right square in the face. You know, sometimes how you kind you see somebody kinda of come with a cross and then they kinda of hit across somebody's face. She nope. is she, Yeah, I mean, not not here. No, no, no exactly right. <laughs> right. So this is I mean, this is directly into his face. And he is like knocked backwards big time. Right. However, like, he's a big I, man. I like how she put on a boxing glove in order to do it because in the in the panel oh. before she's not wearing a glove, and her left and her, it, her right hand doesn't have a glove. No, yeah, she put it on just to hit him in the face. <laughs> she's she like, uh, I'm going to put on this glove for no reason. Bam! Right <laughs> Did you ever hear of Michael Jackson? Bam! In your face. That's funny. But then he smacks her back, which you don't see very often. No, he smacks her back pretty good. Knocks her on her butt, but he's a big man. He's a big man. Yeah, he, he's quite a bit taller than she was. Yeah, yeah, but I do like how Sulu drops him like a like like a sack of potatoes. Yeah, when he was first introduced, I thought he was like a Lando Calrissian type character. Right, he kind of looks like Lando. And even towards the end, he kind of seems like still kind of a Lando Calrissian character. Right, if Lando really ended up being truly bad as opposed to right you know, just forced to decide forced to do what he did yeah because the deal just kept getting worse all the time exactly 
Pray it does not get any worse. So, uh, yeah, but this guy's he's this guy's a slaver. He's a bad guy. He's all bad. He's a bad dude. Yeah. All right. Lastly, for me, uh, fish people. Yeah. <laughs> uh huh. I like the idea of fish people, you know, because, uh-huh. but I don't know. Do you like the execution? These these leave some some something to be desired. Yeah. Well, bit. they got legs. Yeah. Or are those robot legs? I don't know. Oh, and the tail's kind of like folded up in the in the main egg shape, right? And compartment controlling controlling the controlling the feet somehow. Maybe, maybe. Good point. But it looks like their hands are exposed to the elements. Or they or their robot suits have color matched. Yeah, color matched their face. Yeah, yeah. No, no, that's not true. No. But at least, at at least they're acknowledging it's got gills. It needs to breathe. It needs to have water around the head, uh, which is better than the fish people we see in Star Trek. I mean, you know, the uh, next is it next gen that has the. Uh, Oh right, the, the alien people or the the fish people with the kind of shower curtain kind of outfit right. on, and nothing on their head. Yep. Yeah, yep, that was next generation. Next gen. There you go. Anyway, so from that standpoint, at least it looks like it makes a little more sense. But yeah. Yeah, but these look too much like fish. I, I would. Yeah. I mean, since Star Trek's all about you know everybody looks humanish mm-hmm. with with bumps on their head. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you see these guys and they look just like, you know. Head of a carp or something inside yeah. of a fishbowl. <laughs> right. Uh, I, I, it takes me out a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Huh. Yep, I agree. Well, I guess I do have one more thing. The yes. uh, And I'm surprised you haven't brought it up. Okay. Um, the, the older gentleman that works for um, the Lando-ish kind of guy, <laughs> uh, he, has, he has a gun that's Buganda. bigger than his head. That he shoots the slave with. I mean, and it has like, looks like maybe three or four barrels on it. They're on page 13. Yeah, yeah, I see it. Doesn't seem a little excessive? <laughs> it does look like a big gun. And yeah, it seems to have a lot of stuff on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's just another example of more like a Buck Rogers kind of fanciful, just huge gun unnecessary i I completely agree it's unnecessary but they really want to get across the point that these guys are bad and they use big guns to kill slaves dead they're bad dudes they bad dudes exactly speaking of bad dudes baganda looks like a 70s black action movie star thing you know like shaft or something yeah, he has that, that vibe going on, yes. Definitely. He's got the big mustache, and he's got the mutton chops, and uh, the he shirt just looks... all opened up exactly. with chest hair poking Exposing out. Exposing all the chest hair. And yeah. Oh. He is a 70s action star, all right. He is. No, I was getting the same thing. Yeah. I have one thing to say. One last thing. Okay. As Kirk is saying to the fish people, no problem. We'll get you to a new planet. The Federation, well, I'll guarantee, he's practically guaranteeing it. And at first I'm thinking, you know, is Kirk in a position to be guaranteeing this to a whole race that we're going to relocate you? I mean, that's going to, 
take resources, and somebody's got to give a, pl- a planet, or there has to be a planet lying around nobody's using. Okay, that's all possible, but come on. he's giving, you know, yeah. And then I was thinking, you know, if I was... If I thought less of Kirk, I would think, hmm, relocate these fish people, and then we get a planet that's loaded with dilithium crystals. Hmm. Okay, we'll relocate you. We're good guys. Oh, horrible. Ah! <laughs> it's a win-win situation, I'm saying. But I'm just saying, it just occurs to me that, I mean, they need dilithium crystals, and there's a, obviously a lot of them on this planet. Right. So, oh, I'm just funny. saying. I'm just saying. It's a free planet out of it. It's, I, and maybe it's the Ferengi side of me that's coming up with that, <laughs> but uh, I'm just saying. That's funny. Okay. They'll give them their own planet, and then they'll hire them out as cheap labor to keep mining the stuff. But this time we'll pay you minimum wage. <laughs> do the exact same thing. Well, I don't think they would make very effective miners, but yeah. Uh, I think uh, I think uh, Kirk could be doing a little, uh, you know, I don't know, a little Donald Trump thing or something here, you know, a slick little business move. Yep, yep, come could on, be. come on, buddy. Like when Donald Trump Trump sold uh, uh, Merv Griffin this island that was partially developed to be some kind of resort or something island. Okay, it's like. Uh, <laughs> and it just, you know, it just turned out to be a failure or something. It's like, Merv, are you as good a businessman as you think you are? <laughs> anyway. So. Uh, yes. That's it. That's all I'd say about this one. That's it? That's, I, I don't have much to say about it. It's an okay, it's an okay book. Yeah. I, I really liked how Sulu was stretching himself as a commander and everything. Yeah. So that was cool. And, you know, getting to see Ohura do something more than just work the comm station was good. No, I was very happy to see a, a, a yeah. one-off story with uh, without the focus on Kirk. Right. But, but then they did with the fish people. I mean, oh. I would have liked it if they didn't necessarily need that B story going on. Oh, yeah. Well. And this truly just be Kirk and Ahura on, on their own. Yeah. No, it was good. And I liked the whole setup of Zulu being a, a commander. Yes, very good. Very good. I like that. So, I mean, obviously, I mean, Paramount must have been communicating that was going to be happening in in the upcoming movies. So. Well, still pretty far away. I know, but, I mean, they must, I mean, why else would they be doing this? I mean, they're really making a big deal in multiple issues about Sulu wanting his own command. Right. So. And yep. quite frankly, deserving it. So that's that's great. I love it. Same. Yeah. Did, All right. Did we talk about that supposed incident where there was a scene that was supposed to be filmed in Star Trek Five, Four? I don't know what something like that. That was just it was Kirk in a hallway with Sulu congratulating him on his new command. Yeah, but Shatner supposedly ruined the take or something. Exactly, and wouldn't he basically wouldn't wouldn't do it right? Right. It's like I I wonder if that's I, I suppose that's probably true, but boy, well, you hope it's not true. You hope it's not true, but I get the feeling it might be. I uh, know. <laughs> I mean, you know all those stories you hear about Shatner. 
sometimes being a little bit self-absorbed. Yes, you hear those stories. Yeah. Anyway. Now, no, um, I just watched um, the uh, George Decay documentary. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, interesting. Yeah, have you have you seen it? I've not seen it. Pretty, pretty good. It's a. Uh, um, it's a. It, maybe it's just called To Be Decay or something like that. Right. Um, but yeah, it was really good, and uh, it's so weird that they have interviews with Leonard Nimoy and, and everybody, and Shatner, and oh. you know, and Shatner is again. You don't know if he's really. If he if he's being serious or if he's playing off the misconception that they hate each other or whatever, but but he's just like, yeah, I just I thought it was a really stupid move for you know, and I'm paraphrasing here, so don't 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 think I'm quoting him exactly, but he's basically belittling uh, George Takei's uh, desire to be off the Enterprise, you know, to be in command of his own ship, but not to be in every shot or. You know, why would he want his own command if he's not going to be, you know, in the thick of the show, in the thick of the movie? Acting like, you know, he should he should want a lesser role on my bridge as opposed to having his own command uh, of his own ship. But it, really not being in the movie that much or as much. Right. Well, that's but right. how much of it would he actually be in? He would still be in the probably the same much, same amount. Shields down to 30 percent. <laughs> <laughs> True, but like the Spock thing, getting his own command, you need to do something to bring that ship and Sulu back into it, like they had in, in 6. Yeah, no, I thought y- 6 y- was y- great. You can't always engineer that in every movie, but of right. course there wasn't any more with that crew, so. Yeah. I, well, they've, yeah. they've done it with Worf, I mean, they come back, every every movie they come up with a new excuse as to why he's there in the, nah. on the Enterprise D, or Enterprise E. <laughs> Yeah, well, we don't have to worry about that anymore, will we? <laughs> I guess not. Yeah. Anyways, highly recommend watching that uh, that documentary about George. Stick. So it was very interesting. So you saw that on Netflix or something, or it's on? Uh, yeah, it was it was out at the theater, and I didn't get a chance to see it. Um, uh-huh. And then it, now it's on Netflix. But I'm sure okay. you can buy it or rent it in other places if you don't have Netflix. Well, my son has Netflix, so ah. I can watch it that way. Yep, it's there. Cool. Okay. Anything else? Nada. All right, so that finishes up this episode. Next week, uh, we're going to take a break from the DC Comic Volume 1 and go back to some old IDW stuff that we've uh, kind of passed over. So we're going to start off the miniseries Star Trek Con Ruling in Hell. Oh, that's good. I've been waiting for that one. Right, so this will be a four-parter, four issues that we'll split up into two episodes. We'll do the first three three issues next episode. And then the episode after that, which will be uh, episode f- 216, we'll do Khan Ruling in Hell Part 4. And we'll do the Star Trek photo novel or photo <laughs> comic, uh, Strange New Worlds. Cool. Which, uh, I that think should be interesting. Are, yeah, those are done by John Byrne. So. Yeah, yeah. So they should be pretty good. They should be and, good. And I remember those when I was a kid. I mean, well. The real photo The novels. real photo novels, which were paperbacks. Um, so it looked like a, a normal kind of novel, right. um, Star Trek novel, but it was just, the whole story was just loaded with photos from the show. Um, uh, but with now these photo novels were really of episodes, right. uh, and then the they, old ones, the old ones. Right. uh, so I forgot which ones they did, but 
let's say they did Doomsday Machine or something. So they'd, ha- they'd actually do the Doomsday Machine in paper form with photos, and I guess they had word balloons. Which is great, because so, back then you didn't have reruns and you didn't have no, uh, DVDs and things Not like at that. all. I mean, when I was a kid, I think I might have mentioned this before, I actually audio recorded episodes and listened to them that way. Actually, when I first came upon these books, actually having a, a, a paper-based way to re-experience re, the stories I love, it was great. Right. Right. So, yeah. So these, though, are brand new stories where he's taken scenes from all the episodes and photoshopped them into a story. So A new story. That is yeah. cool. And I'm really looking forward to reading these. I've... I've got like the first two issues, but I, I think there's been maybe six or seven more after that. So uh, we'll have a lot to catch up on eventually. That's amazing. I have not read one of these. I've got a few of them. I've le- I've thumbed through them, but I've not read one. So this is going to be it's going to be fun. Yeah, there's one uh, that I'm really curious about. Where um, number one from from the uh, the pilot. She's now an admiral or something, and she comes to visit the the Enterprise. Revisit with Spock and stuff, and and he just kind of like grayed up her hair a little bit, but it's still you know Margelle Barrett from from Mm -hmm. that episode. So uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to reading these eventually. Yeah. So all right, sounds great. Let's go ahead and close up shop, and we'll be back next week. Sounds great. Thanks everybody for joining us on the review. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name stcomic. Second name, book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.